0: A real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast
1: with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My goal here is to find that person that is you know, maybe one in a thousand and in their field, they, they've really chosen to excel and succeed and uh, do great things. So my guest today, in the spirit of that, is uh, George Mazariegos. Uh, he's a director of pediatric transplantation at Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Uh, he's also a professor at University of Pittsburgh in the Department of Surgery. So, George, thanks for coming. How are you doing today?
2: Richard, thank you very much. I'm doing well, and I'm glad to be chatting with you this, uh, this day. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I didn't know that, uh, well, I guess unfortunately, pediatric transplantation is a, is probably a big need. Um, why did you decide to focus in that area? And then I wanted to get into some of the you know procedures that uh, I guess kids need in terms of transplantation. So some background on you first, like what, what attracted you to this area?
2: Thank you. It it's been a bit of a journey for sure to really find the the niche and the calling that uh, is what I sense now in pediatric transplantation, and what is really a, Exciting to note and what perhaps is not as well known to the listeners is that Pediatric transplantation really was the beginning of the transplant field uh, that was pioneered by Thomas Starzl in the 60s Uh, for liver in particular all of the early clinical successes were in children and many of the lessons that uh, the field has learned, and many of the challenges that the field is continuing to learn uh, really center around trying to help children overcome the, the the challenges to a successful transplant. And and they were the, really the the beginners, uh, the pioneers, and um, continue to be uh, the um, the ones who push the field forward. Uh, that the need is is um, not as numerically significant as the adult transplantation need. Uh, from the number perspective, but qualitatively and for impact on a lifetime, it uh, really is an incredible opportunity and need uh, even now
1: so what kind of conditions necessitate uh, transplants into children and children of what age range? If we look at the
2: at the age category really uh, as a broad one, and the the uh, national global health uh, world health organization definition of of a child is really a a a a person under the age of 18 Uh, and we see that through the spectrum of disease there are uh, really a significant spectrum of diseases that occur in children beginning at birth and all the way through the adolescent period and in many of those cases uh, there are um, groups of diseases that really affect uh, children at all that age spectrum in different ways, the majority of our of the children that we care for are young, and that would be defined as either newborn up through up through infancy and early childhood. Uh, for the purposes of, of of the discussion, really the 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 child from birth to about age five or six. Uh, and there's there's really um, an amazing um, heterogeneity in the kinds of diseases and uh, challenges that these children face about half of them are genetic uh, in origin and about half of them are um, are uh, not clearly genetically based um, but present in the early in the early childhood period and of course we're talking about uh, transplantation broadly Uh, we can think about transplantation challenges for uh, children who have heart or lung disease children who have liver disease intestinal disease, and kidney disease. I primarily focus uh, in my uh, daily life on children with liver and intestinal disease, uh, although here at the Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh, uh, we care for uh, children and organ failure of all those types, and different uh, different team members from our team here work on in, uh, in the care of all of those children. Uh, in, in liver and intestinal disease, uh, it's really split about 50% between the genetic and, and congenital diseases, and other types of uh, liver or intestinal disease.
1: If you do a transplant on a child that's young enough, do they still have to be immunosuppressed forever? Or you know, is, perhaps their immune system is underdeveloped to the point where they can assimilate the new organ or transplant and, and live normally? Is that possible?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Richard. We, um, In general, the indication and timing of transplant is driven by the necessity. And so when we have children who present with life, life-threatening organ failure at an early age, perhaps with neonatal liver failure, for example, then that child child recur, uh, requires transplant at that time. In other cases, the disease progression itself doesn't really develop until, uh, until uh, a later age. We've learned from from different uh, transplant processes over the years, that the immune system is more pliable uh, at, the, or at an early age in life. And so, for example, heart transplants, uh, which can be a challenging transplant to do later in life uh, due to chronic type rejection that occurs in the organ, can actually be accepted uh, when, the, when the child is a, is a baby and can even be done across blood types, which isn't possible later in life. Uh, the challenge is that um, that you don't want to do that transplant in infancy if you don't need to, of course. And uh, but we have learned some immunologic lessons, uh, particularly in in heart and in liver transplant, about low need for immunosuppression when the immune system can be can be modeled. Unfortunately, it's not something that can be tailored yet into clinical practice. Uh, but it may benefit those who do require transplant at that very early time period. Most children, uh, and by most we, we're talking about 95% of, of children, require lifelong immunosuppression. Uh, and this is an area that is a significant uh, part of my research and, and the research of those that are in the community to try to understand why the 5% can reach the tolerance state and be living a healthy life with a healthy organ with no immunosuppression.
1: I do need immunosuppression. Um, what does that look like throughout their lifespan? Do they need less and less of it or more and more of it over time? What does that seem?
2: One of the things that drew me to transplantation when I was a general surgery resident was that meeting patients who had undergone transplantation was really transformative and allowed me to see that the picture I had of a of a very chronically ill patient on lifelong immunosuppressive therapy. Uh, despite having navigated a successful trans- transplant, but not having achieved a normal quality of life, was, was really what I had in mind and was not the case. It was really amazing to see that when patients, and particularly children, were restored to a healthy recovery after transplant, that it was often impossible to tell them apart from um, non transplant patients. And we've really made some significant progress with immunosuppression. Over, over the years and and it's and it was really transforming to see uh, patients who really return to normal life and having said that to to answer your question the particularly in children there are greater challenges with the immunosuppression that is required to, to help patients uh, maintain their graft uh, then really fearing about recurrent disease or other uh, or other acquired diseases that adults have to worry or contend with Um, it is rare for children to have recurrent disease of the uh, of the liver that would come back after transplant Um, in many cases the transplant is curative um, and in only rare diseases in only rare conditions is the is the disease possible to recur that's not the case as much in adults who have to deal with adult uh, uh, viral related uh, complications or uh, complications of recurrent malignancy and tumor, uh, and so for the ch- for the child, the real challenge is to navigate a whole lifetime of immunosuppression uh, with the minimal amount needed to keep the liver healthy, um, and yet avoid any long-term damage to the to the um, uh, uh, to the uh, to the liver through immune-mediated uh, problems or rejection.
1: The nuance of the immunosuppression. Why is it better today? Versus you know years ago, what does it do that works better?
2: Some of the things that have happened in immunosuppression uh, have been to really understand that although the drugs haven't dramatically changed in the last 20 years, most patients are on what's called a calcineurin inhibitor, and this is the main the main drug that the majority of transplant patients are on. What we have done, particularly for children, is we've been able to monitor the side effects of immunosuppression and titrate the dosing before complications became more significant. And the the most significant complication that was affecting children 20 years ago were viral complications. Um, This uh, manifested in in many ways, most classically in in a syndrome that was due to Epstein-Barr virus infection, Uh, EBV, what commonly is known to folks as infectious mononucleosis but can in a transplant patient present as a significant uh, lymphoproliferative disease basically a cancer that could progress because of b-cell proliferation that gets unchecked because of the t-cell inhibition of the calcineurin inhibitor Um, it's been the ability to monitor levels of virus in our uh, in our bloodstream basically that allows us to measure those levels in children, even when they're completely asymptomatic, and lower the immunosuppression levels before that type of virus can can become unchecked. Uh, And then this is currently in the era, of course, that we're facing now with with the virus infection. It really underscores the the key role that managing viruses for our transplant patients uh, is really paramount in our transplant community, and it has been a big focus for the last decades.
1: Someone is uh, immunosuppressed and goes about their life. They're given you know, drugs to keep them that way. But are those drugs, are you saying that there's a possibility of tailoring the amount of drugs and the frequency that they're getting them based on external conditions, based on biomarkers and things like that? That's right.
2: That's uh, exactly correct. We can titrate based on the levels of, of these secondary markers or effects of overimmunosuppression like virus markers. Uh, viral markers such as the ones that I mentioned for EBV or other viruses like CMV. Um, we can also um, titrate the um, the effect of the drug on um, on the kidney system uh, because some of these drugs have uh, deleterious potential effects on the renal system or the non-organ that's transplanted. And if for a liver recipient, we check on the kidney. We we make sure they're not hypertensive, uh, and we adjust those. And this allows long-term, um, uh, long-term benefits to be really sustained over a period of time where the, the patient won't suffer from a, a life-threatening viral infection, as was more common 20 years ago, uh, and will have healthy liver function, healthy uh, kidney function. The other biomarker uh, that we, we use to balance out the infection risk is really looking at the health of the of the transplanted organ the liver and the kidney and we look at that um, through biopsy changes right now we're hoping to develop more um, more uh, subtle or less invasive uh, biomarkers to look at the at the transplanted organ but right now liver biopsy or renal biopsy heart biopsy etc are a gold standard for really assessing that there's no destructive immune process that's happening in the organ and can allow us to further lower uh, immunosuppression um, to the to the lowest level possible so we look for infections we look for those complications and we look at the organ itself um, and when we don't see destructive changes then we can we can lower immunosuppression further and this was this is work that was really led by by Thomas Starzl the Father of transplantation, if you will, um, here in um, uh, in Pittsburgh in the in the late 80s and early 90s, uh, who worked on these types of, uh, of patients, particularly uh, for children who faced the longest potential burden of immunosuppression. You know, transplanted for hopefully a lifetime.
1: What about when uh, a child goes through puberty? Um, you know, for women as they cycle. Is there any modulation of it? You know, if a woman wants to get pregnant and have a child, is that possible while being immunosuppressed? In those scenarios.
2: Yeah, in terms of what happens over over the span of of a, of a lifetime, it's there, there's some fascinating changes. I think one of the questions that you asked earlier um, was, what happens as children grow, and and do they need more or less? And um, every patient is different, and the, there are some patients who. Uh, who do need to maintain a certain level of immunosuppressant as they, as they grow. Um, and this is based on some of those markers that we've talked about already on the, on, the, on the interview. If they've developed rejection, then they may need to maintain a level and may need to increase uh, the, the level of drug that they're taking over time. For others, though, uh, as they grow, uh, they develop no, no changes in their liver graft and uh, almost auto-wean themselves uh, by measure of of taking the same amount of medicine that they took when they were children, now that they're adults. On the other hand, for patients who are on immunosuppressant medications, uh, changes like adolescence can be um, can be a challenging time point, m- mostly from the adherence point of view, um, and abrupt changes in in the uh, medicine adherence can lead to can lead to significant. Uh, rejection or problems in the in the uh, in the transplanted organ. For um, for women of childbearing age, though, there's great news, and that, that is that uh, that many um, uh, many uh, successful pregnancies have been uh, pregnancies have been reported uh, in transplanted um, women uh, with uh, normal um, normal uh, childbirth, and um, and this has been really recorded across all of the transplanted organ recipients. Uh, there's a, a pregnancy um, registry that's been re- developed to really track and report on the successful um, delivery of, um, of children to transplanted uh, patients. Uh, and this, is, um, uh, this has been well reported now. So um, one of the greatest uh, treats, of course, in my life has been to see patients who have Transplant as children then grow up and and uh, and have a family and um, and uh, to, to be able to um, really part, be a part of that was was fantastic the uh, There are some practical things that um, that physician teams who are caring for uh, uh, patients who do become pregnant uh, follow and uh, some of this relates to some specific medicines that have to be stopped during uh, pregnancy uh, the The main medicine that I mentioned. The the tacrolimus or the calcineurin inhibitor, uh, however, can be taken throughout pregnancy, um, and does not have any any effects on the developing baby. Uh, the other ancillary medicines um, may may need to be adjusted and are reviewed at the time of the at the time of the of the uh, pregnancy and peri, uh, perinatal care uh, to ensure that uh, none of those medicines are on board during uh, during pregnancy.
1: Well, yes, pregnancy itself demonstrates like. A segregation of immunity to keep the baby, uh, you know, being able to grow and not being rejected anyway. So it's good that that doesn't interfere.
2: Yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right.
1: So what um, when someone's uh, had a transplant, what's the, the protocol? Do they just take a couple of medications every day and then everything's as normal? Or what does, uh, you know, a child or an adolescent have to do when they're immunosuppressed and they have a transplant? What's their daily life look like that's different from another kid?
2: It's a great question. We we aspire as a community to try to tailor a regimen that is as much um, conducive to normal life after uh, after transplant um, as as a child who doesn't have a transplant. Um, having said that, the 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 life looks different for children based on a couple of factors. It may look different based on when they had the transplant. Um, for example. The child who uh, had a transplant as a as a baby and um, grows up and is doing well and at the time of entering um, uh, elementary or middle school is on one or two drugs it it may be such that they have no um, no real impairment on their life whatsoever and their friends may not even know they've had a transplant unless uh, unless they choose to, to share that information. Um, you can contrast this a bit with the the adolescent who's been doing well until he develops a disease that requires transplantation in in high school, um, and the impact of the um, of the medical regimen uh, that is typically heavier in the first year or two after transplant. So you may start off with uh, taking one or two immunosuppressant medicines, uh, but also a variety of other medications to keep. The transplant organ healthy as well as a fight off infection in that early period and so some patients could take a, a much larger amount of medicines um, and acids antiviral medication antibiotics and uh, and their immunosuppressants and this weans down over time for each of those two cases their their perception of the life quality uh, may, may be different and uh, we really work with each of those to each of those uh, patients to to help them adjust as as best as possible for and each of them has different dangers for the first for the for the first case I've shared you can imagine that um, the patient feels so well has never known not being well and so really doesn't feel that they've ever had a condition any significant condition and um, and might think why do they really need to take these medications anyway the one medicine that they take every day um, you know they feel great and why should they um, on the other hand the other the other patient may be, uh, may be more acutely aware of the need for that even though they face the challenges of, of being well and, and having a disruption in their life that hopefully will get um, get um, uh, be resolved and get better um, if they follow this course so each each kind of group has a different challenge um, and it's um, and it really really requires a team of the uh, physicians, the the social workers the psychologists to help really explain and educate as best as possible these different uh, challenges that they have um, the good The good news really is that from a uh, from a outcome point of view when we do a liver transplant now we expect that they would have a near lifelong outcome with a ninety five percent survival rate um, at all comers um, and this is um um, this is really dramatic and um, has come such a long way from those early, um, early failures that happened in the, in the 60s when pediatric liver transplantation was first undertaken uh, by Dr. Storzel.
1: So what about uh, the microbiome of the patient and then factors like were they breastfed or not? Um, what was the delivery like? Was it C-section or vaginal? Has, has anyone looked at uh, how that interacts with the transplant?
2: Right now, the microbiome is an area of developing interest, particularly for transplants that actually involve the elementary truck. So the patient who is receiving an intestinal transplant and has the um, microbiome and uh, gut colonization as part of the actual transplanted organ is quite a challenging transplant to manage and recipient to care for, and the microbiome is a particular in developing interest in those patients um nutritional factors like uh, breast milk and um and those type of therapies or history also play into adaptation and recovery of particularly the um the enteral system uh, the the elementary tract and the the patient who either gets um, a portion of their intestine removed as a baby and needs to adapt that intestine. So there's a great adaptive process that the intestine um, goes through normally after a resection or losing part of the bowel, and it's this um, uh, this adaptation that may is 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 speeded by um, by natural uh, means such as breast milk, as compared to more artificial. Um, Support such as total parenteral nutrition, which is uh, intravenous nutritional support that that maintains patients alive, but may not impact the ability of the intestine to recover um, the micro the bio, microbiome otherwise, um, and um, uh, nutritional factors um, through breast milk and um, and such. Otherwise, have not yet been completely well studied, and it's it's an area of um, of active work right now to to see if that how uh, from an immune modulatory point of view those type of treatments could could boost immunity or or at least um, um, uh, boost nutritional health better than um, uh, than uh, than other methods may.
1: Okay, right. well, very good. But what's the uh, near term future look like? maybe the next 5 years are there innovations that are just about here in the transplant world
2: one of the challenges is really trying to balance um, when we meet with patients who have organ failures to tell them what's what's around the corner um, and what what is what should we wait for uh, what do we need to proceed with now and what are some of the most likely developments having been in the field actively for about 25 years it's it's been interesting to see what what some of those therapies that we said were just around the corner uh, in 1990 are still seemingly just around the corner, to be honest. Uh, there's a couple of them that I'd like to mention. Um, the first is, um, is gene therapy. Um, gene therapy has been literally just around the corner for about 20 years now. Um, and there are no proven trials that have demonstrated lifelong uh, benefit with gene therapy, although we were pleased to be part of a gene therapy trial for a single gene defect that leads to a disease called Krigler-Najjar uh, last year. Um, gene therapy is, is promising, particularly because half of the children, as I mentioned, may suffer from a genetic condition that if the genetic defect could be replaced, you could avoid transplantation. In essence, we think of liver transplantation or organ transplantation as somatic gene therapy um, because it delivers the gene product for patients who have genetic defects. And in some of these cases, if you were to look at the organ, the, the organ would be completely normal um, in, the, in, the, in the recipient candidate for a transplant. They, the liver looks normal, but it's missing a, a key enzyme or enzyme pathway, and therefore, the toxicity of that pathway affects the brain, the kidney or the heart, even though they're not in liver failure at all. Um, so the liver transplant functions as gene therapy. I think that there has been progress in the, in the delivery of the gene vector and in the toxicity. So it's been a, a safe, uh, there are safer ways to deliver gene therapy now than there were 10 years ago, but the efficacy hasn't yet been proven. Probably further down the road, is um, is uh, cellular engineering and and bioengineering to develop um, organ subsets or organoids that could replace the function of a liver or a kidney we're further from um, from real clinical application in terms of intestinal engineering but I think that um, with the with the use of stem cell engineering and um, IPS cells which help um, uh, which may differentiate into the select organ types of um, of cells that patients need, we may be getting closer, uh, but this right now is still at a very um, small scale and not hasn't been transplanted you know, or translated I'm sorry into um, into a clinical replacement for transplants so that that is probably further uh, further down the road. Uh, what we have um, what we have seen uh, Impact for patients who are in organ failure are in, in some drugs to help with the adaptation of the of the organs, such as um, uh, hormonal therapies that have helped intestines to regenerate and avoid transplant. Um, and and this has certainly been an, an area that has has improved. We've also made significant improvement in the ability to uh, to do support devices. Or organ failure in uh, children with with heart failure and so the the technology for ventricular assist devices uh, and in cardiac support although has not reached the point of lifelong destination therapy as the final therapy it has it has made significant advances in the engineering uh, status to allow patients to have that type of life support um, while they're waiting for transplant, and in a few cases potentially to, uh, to be the end goal. Although this is uh, this is uh, not yet uh, widely available for patients uh, due to um, the scale needed and problems with clotting over a long period of time. Um, but those are the two. Those are the two areas that I think are, um, are from a organ replacement point of view, uh, still down the road. From a therapy point of view, in the post-transplant period, the community is working hard at trying to identify tools that could help the immune system to accept transplanted organs better and get to that tolerant state where they don't need to take immunosuppression. Now, this is still um, also not consistently uh, applicable to patients. We have done therapies like this by giving a combined bone marrow and organ transplant but the toxicity of this uh, in many cases is not one that is um, um, meaningfully applied uh, to children, given the good results that we have with standard immunosuppression. Um, but there one, are. One
1: quick, um, is, one quick thing that comes to mind I guess children would have a lot more stem cells than adults, um, but is there any possibility of inducing pluripotency in children's cells where it's easier than in adults? Are they somehow? More undifferentiable.
2: It it does seem that the ability for the stimulation of um, pluripotent cells is um, uh, is theoretically uh, easier to do. Um, most of the work has been done in adult in adults, um, adult adult um, uh, uh, cases or adult samples, and so this um, um, and there hasn't there hasn't been clinical trials. Uh, for any solid organ failure yet. Uh, we would You would imagine, uh, we believe that the that the pediatric recipient would be, uh, for the reasons that I mentioned earlier, particularly if you could do it at an early age, uh, would be the most likely to benefit from a successful technology like that, but it hasn't been done yet.
1: Okay, very good. Well, George, I mean, you're working in a super important field. Uh, it's been a really good call. What's the best way for... Parents or just listeners to find out more if they have a situation they need help in.
2: I'd be happy to chat with them. Um, they can contact me at at CHP Transplant on Twitter or through our email at George.Mazriegos@chp.edu, um, and uh, really happy to chat with um, with uh, parents or families or patients who have questions about uh, this area and. and it is, um, it is one where I, um, with our uh, teams and the teams of people working ar- around the country, hopefully we can make a difference for that, uh, that child with, uh, with organ failure. Excellent.
0: You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.